God is great. And he's greatly to be praised. From the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, our God is worthy to be praised. Church, this is the day that the Lord has made. And we ought to rejoice and be glad in it. We have been in our sermonic series for this season of Advent called Incarnate, while the manger matters. Advent is the beginning of the liturgical church calendar. This is a, we've said over the last couple of weeks that this is a season of watching and waiting. And so what we've set out to do in this series is to just walk through our statement of faith concerning the person of Jesus Christ. Turn, if you will, in your Bibles, flip there, swipe there, to the New Testament book of Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Matthew chapter 1, verses number 1 through 17. And I'm going to forewarn you that you will want to keep your copy of God's Word open, ready, and available uh, because we will reference a couple of different scriptures this morning as we study the person of Christ. Matthew chapter 1, beginning with verse number 1, the first book of the New Testament. Here at the Bridge Church, we stand in reverence to God's holy word. We believe that God speaks to us when we read his word. And so we ask that you would stand if you are willing and able uh, to as we read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. All right. Let's see how bad I can mess up these names. Matthew chapter 1, begin with verse number 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. 
and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the de deportation to Babylon. Verse 12. <laughs> and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. <laughs> so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to, excuse me, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Remain standing. Remain standing. This morning, so I've read this to you the last two weeks, our statement of faith concerning Jesus Christ. This morning, I would have you read it together with me. You get the easy part. So let's read together our statement of faith. Regard, regarding Jesus, who is the Christ. Here it is. Let's read together. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, one person and two natures. Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead, <coughs> ascended into heaven, right hand of God the Father as our high priest and advocate. Amen. You may be seated. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God. That was week one. And fully man. Week two. One person in two natures. Jesus. Israel's promised Messiah. Let's talk about that this morning. Israel's promised Messiah. Today, we we go back to the ancient Jewish version of Ancestry.com. Before that was 23 and me, there was Matthew 1. And friends, you may be wondering, you may be saying, what in the world is there to say about a genealogy? What is there for us to learn about 
this begat him, and him begat her, and, and all these begats, begats, begats. What is there to learn? We must remember that all Scripture is inspired. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. So there's something for us to learn that is going to teach us about God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Matthew, his gospel is written to a primarily Jewish audience. And in, in writing to this Jewish audience, it is his task and goal to present Jesus as the king. He is the king of the Jews. But before Matthew can present him as the king of the Jews, the first thing that he has to do is set out a case. He has to make the case that Jesus has the right to rule as a king. That's where we get Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Does Jesus have the right to be the king of the Jews? Does he come through the correct and proper lineage? There it is. To be the king of the Jews. And so, Matthew takes us through three epics to show us that Jesus is indeed the rightful king to the throne. The first thing that he shows us, verses 2 through 5, is that Jesus is the son of Abraham. Jesus is the son of Abraham. What's the significance of Jesus being a son of Abraham? I'm glad you asked. To understand this, we have to look back to Genesis chapter 12. Turn there with me. Genesis chapter number 12. One of the things that you have to be, that you have to know you need to study is the covenants throughout the Bible. The covenants are the thread which, which keep the whole story of the Bible together. The covenants are how God progresses his story, his revelation, and everything he's doing in Scripture. He's, you, we have something, some people say we start with the Adamic covenant, which is God's covenant uh, in, with creation. But then from there you have what the Bible actually says our covenants is Genesis chapter 9, you have the Noahic covenant. So it's God's covenant with Noah. And Noah, essentially what he does is he tells Noah, through you... I'm, I want you now to, to be fruitful and multiply, which is the same mandate and commission that God gave to Adam. And so in one sense, Noah is a new Adam. From the Noahic covenant, you have what we're about to study now, Genesis 12, where we have the Abrahamic covenant. From the Abrahamic covenant, we have then the Mosaic covenant. You'll read about that in the book of Exodus. We'll be studying that next year. From there, you have from uh, the, the, after the Mosaic Covenant, you have what, we would, what we're going to study later, the Davidic Covenant. The Davidic Covenant, from there we have the New Covenant. That's for you. 
And so these are the, the, these are the covenants by which the, the, the storyline progresses. Genesis chapter 12, beginning with verse number 1. Here's what it says. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And you will all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In this passage, God makes a covenant with Abram. A covenant, it's a binding agreement between two parties that set out, one's, uh, set out the expectations and the obligations of each party. In this covenant, God calls Abraham to leave his country and his family. And in this covenant, we have essentially three things that God promises to Abram. Land, seed, blessing. Land, seed, blessing. It's right here. In verse 1, God directs Abram. He says, go to a land that I will show you. Few verses later, we learn that that land is Canaan. In verse 2, he says, now I'm going to make you into a great nation. Now, in order for a nation to exist, it, there requires land and there requires people. God has already told him, I want you to go to a land that I will show you. So I'm giving you land. But you, in order for the nation to exist, you also have to have people to populate the land. Remember, at this time, Abram and Sarah are childless. They have no children. Matter of fact, at one, some, later on in the story, we found out that they are so old, they laugh when God tells them they're going to have a child because they're so far in age. And so... God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. So he gives them land and seed. Then he says, I'm going to make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, remember we said that a nation requires land and a people. But there's one more thing that's required. For a nation to exist. Not only must there be land, not only must there be people, but there must also be a government. Without government, you have a state of anarchy. It, it's lawlessness. And we see what happens, just read the book of Judges. And every man did what was right in his own eye. So then God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. So then there must be a plan for government. God, what's your plan to govern this nation? It's a theocracy. God is the king. So then look what God is doing. We have the kingdom of God through this covenant made with Abram 
where God is king over a particular people in a particular place to bring blessing to the entire earth. This is crucial to understand in Scripture. What we see is the kingdom of God through covenant with a particular people in a particular land for the purpose of blessing the entire earth. Here's the thing. We started in Genesis 12, but this principle is not new. It actually started back in Genesis 1. Okay, let me show it to you then. You just added five minutes to the sermon. Thank you. This is exactly what God did in the very beginning. God established his rule on earth through a particular person whose job was to, to, to birth a particular people. Adam, remember? What was God's mandate to Adam? Be fruitful and so create a people for God. And God put them in a particular place. We know it as Eden. For a particular purpose, to serve God. And so God's paradigm from the very beginning was to establish his kingdom on the earth through a particular people in a particular place to bless the entire earth. The problem was that Genesis 1 and Genesis, after Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is Genesis 3. What's wrong with the number three? It's actually a wonderful number. The problem is in Genesis 3, Adam fails to keep covenant with God. He listens to the voice of the snake, and, and he and his wife, they eat of the tree that was forbidden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and so sin entered, and, and so did chaos. Adam failed to keep covenant because of sin. So what does God do? Adam is kicked out of his place. <laughs> this, is the, this is the paradigm. Paradigm. He's kicked out of the place. He's allowed to continue to, to live on the earth. He has offspring, but this offspring creates more offspring, and there was evil in their heart. And so what does God do? God wipes the earth through a flood except for one man and his family, Noah. And guess what? God does the same thing again. He chooses a particular person, Noah, to create now a particular people that would come through Noah to, to be fruitful and multiply. So God again says, I'm going to establish my kingdom on the earth to a particular people in a particular place. And of course, Noah and his descendants fail because of sin. So what does God do? God starts afresh with this man we know as Abraham. And God's goal in all of this is to exercise his rule through a particular people in a particular place. 
This Abrahamic covenant is a significant covenant because it provides the origin of God's chosen people, Israel. Here's the thing. <laughs> Let me see how many people I can get to walk out on me when I say this. God's chosen people are the Jews. But do you know that the Jews originated through a Gentile? Y'all still sitting, huh? Abraham was from the land of Ur. Remember, the Jewish people didn't exist before Abraham. To be a, so if there were no Jews, then they, he had to be a Gentile, categorically. Oh, this is going to be fun this week. I want to see how many emails I can get. Block. <laughs> and so God takes this Gentile and creates this new people called Israel, his chosen people. He elected, chose Israel. Here's the thing from a Gentile, their job was to be a light to the nation. The purpose of election is mission. See, see, we fuss and fight about election, whether in predestination, all this other kind of stuff. Forget it. Does God choose people? Yeah. But he chooses them for a reason. Mission. That's the purpose of your election. Not to fuss and fight and have theological hair-splitting debates. You're saved to be on mission for God. As a matter of fact, y'all just saying and pray, Lord, so come, Lord Jesus. Here's the thing. That prayer that you prayed ought to motivate you to be on mission because the first time he came to save, but the second time he's coming to judge. And if he's coming to judge, that means that there are going to be some people that are going to be hellbound because they didn't respond to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, which means that out of love, that ought, that ought to propel us to be on mission for Jesus Christ so that as many man, man, mankind as possible can be saved. So God starts this people, Israel, through the Abrahamic covenant. Here's the thing, but like Adam and Noah, Abraham fails. Israel, we just went through Amos and Hosea. We saw how bad they failed. But here's the thing. God made a promise. How can God be faithful to the promise that he made to Abraham. And both Abraham and Israel fell. Y'all ask good questions. Now let's get back to Matthew chapter 1. How will Abraham bring blessing to the nations? How will God bless the nations through Abraham, even though they still fail? That's what Matthew says. Jesus is the son 
of Abraham. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Jesus is the true Israel of God. Jesus, where Israel fell, Jesus was seated on every point. Jesus is the means by which God brings blessings to all the nations. You don't believe it? All right, we started at the beginning of Matthew. Let's go to the end of Matthew. How does Jesus bring blessing to all the nations? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I'm king. I'm Lord. I'm the ruler. Here's his mandate to his people. Here's how he brings blessing to the nations. Go make disciples of all nations. Remember, he's talking to his disciples, to Jewish people, and he tells them, Go make disciples, patata ethne. That's, my, that's me speaking in tongues. Greek tongues. Of all the ethnicities, of all the people groups, that would have perked the ears of Jewish listeners. If I was those disciples, I would have been like, hmm? What you talking about, Jesus? Don't you want me to make disciples of other Jewish people? Because that's who you made the promise to. He said, no, 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 no. You forgot the last part of the Abrahamic covenant. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. My kingdom is not one of just Jewish people, but my kingdom is a multi-ethnic, dare I say that, multi-racial, multi-generational, international, multicultural kingdom. Go make disciples of all nations. And through Jesus, through his church, remember, a particular people in a particular place, God establishes his kingdom. So then why does it matter that we start with Matthew 1 and not skip down to verse 18 where we talk, have, where they announced the birth of Jesus? Because God's been doing something. He's, he's showing us that Jesus is a true Jew. And he's the son of Abraham. But he doesn't stop there. Not only is he the son of Abraham, but he's also the son of David. Okay. Verses 6 through 11. Actually, while you're turning, actually turn to, in the Old Testament to 2 Samuel chapter number 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. As you're turning there, let me give you quickly some context of this passage. Israel wanted to be like the other nations, and so they asked for a king. And for his own reasons, God gave Israel what she desired, and God gave her Saul as her king. This is for free. It has nothing to do with the sermon. You got to be careful what you ask God for. He might just give it to you. Because guess what they got? Saul. Summary of Saul, nuts. (laughs) 
and God took the kingdom from Saul. So now, Israel needs a new king, like the other nations. And that's where David comes on the scene. So David is a king. He's a great king indeed. Flawed king. You know, I got to... Y'all, I almost did a cartwheel if I knew how to do one. I was reading verse number six. And Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. David... Father a child by another man's wife. Jesus had some mess in his family. <laughs> Rahab's in there too. She's a, she was a harlot. This is just this is free. I will not charge you for this this week. Don't be so discouraged by all the family dysfunction that you have and experience. Now, if you are the source of the dysfunction, stop it. <laughs> I don't know why y'all laughing. I'm serious. <laughs> but Jesus had mess in his family adulterers and adulteress and, 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 and harlots. That's in the lineage of he that knew no sin. Jesus got a messy background. The reason I wanted to do that invisible cartwheel is because the Lord promises, I'm going to read it to you, he says, I'm going to make your name great, David. Positively, he, he says, I'm going to make your reputation great. You will be known as a great king, a man after my own heart, even though you will commit adultery. Let me just tell you what we call that, grace. I'm sorry, I can't even, I'm trying to connect the dots for you, but all I can think of is amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. I'm so glad that my sin doesn't disqualify me from being used by God, from being chosen by God. Now, if you're perfect and you don't sin, this don't mean nothing for you. But for those of us who think about sin, dream about sin, wake up sinning, go to sleep sinning, we're thankful that, that what can wash away our sin is the blood of Jesus. You know what? I may charge for that. Get the offering bags. He's the son of David. So 2 Samuel chapter 7. David is a great king, 
And he says, I want to build my God a permanent structure, a temple. And God says, no. Verse number 8. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse number 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, that's Nathan the prophet he's talking to. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you could be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In this agreement or this covenant, the essential features can be summarized in three words. House, kingdom, throne. House, kingdom, throne. The house of verse 11 refers to the physical seed of David. Notice here that there's a play on word. David wanted to build God a house, and God says, no, I'm going to make for you a house. But this is going to be physical descendants. This will be a royal dynasty. There will be a line stemming from David that will be the divinely recognized royal line. And immediately, that line would be started through David's offspring, who would be a king. We know that king to be Solomon. And it is Solomon who would build the literal house for God's name. It was through Solomon that God promised to establish his throne forever. So Solomon, according to verse 12, would have an established kingdom. We've got the house. We've got the kingdom. God promises to, God makes a promise to David that Solomon's kingdom would be established forever. Not only that, his throne would be established forever. By throne, he's referring not necessarily to the literal throne, but the right to rule. Now, here's the thing. We believe, let me sound smart, the way we interpret the Bible is through a literal hermeneutic. 
Y'all didn't say nothing. The means by which we interpret the Bible, the science by which we, the science that we use to interpret is one of, of, oh, we interpret the Bible literally. That's what I was trying to say. Okay? So, if we interpret this passage literally, here's what it says. God's going to do all these things, but then we come to a couple of challenges here. Verse number 14. I, that's God, will be to him, that's Solomon, a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline, discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. So using a literal hermeneutic, this has to be fulfilled through someone who has the ability to sin. So it has to be Solomon to which he's referring to. What's the problem? The problem comes in verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Was Solomon forever? Is Solomon forever? No, he died. So upon first reading of this passage, using a literal hermeneutic, it seems as if Solomon is the fulfillment of this covenant, and God has fulfilled all his obligations under his covenant. But, but we've got to deal with this forever language. This term forever makes the Davidic covenant an eternal covenant. So how in the world will God remain faithful to the promises he made to King David eternally? Matthew chapter 1. Matthew traces the line of Jesus all the way back to King David. In verse 6 of Matthew 2. So then, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Jesus is the only man who lives eternally. So then, Jesus is the one who rules and reigns from the royal line of David. And because Jesus is eternal, his reign has no end. Jesus is the forever king. Jesus is the means by which God keeps his promises to King David. Jesus is the means by which the kingdom shall have no end. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. But he's also Jesus the son of exiles, verses 12 through 16. In verse number 12, we learn that the ancestry of Jesus goes also back to the time of the deportation of God's people to Babylon. God's chosen people, Israel, were exiled to Babylon because of their transgressions and sins against God. And where there's sin, there must be judgment. They failed to live in faithful obedience to God. 
They failed to keep covenant with God, so God judged them. He sent his judgment on them, and he removed them from their promised land and placed them under foreign oppression. Friends, the problem with this deportation is that God's people are now in a foreign land. Remember, God promised Abraham and David that their offspring would have their own land. In exiles, their leaders are now subservient to the foreign kings. But remember, he just made a promise to David saying his kingdom will, will, will last forever. So then the question has to be asked, how is David's throne to be established forever? God's people are in exile. And it is on the Davidic covenant, that they rest their hope. They are waiting for that Davidic king to come and rescue them from this foreign oppression. What a wait it was. The, the actual deportation, there were actually multiple deportations to Babylon. It started somewhere in like 607 B.C. But the main one is 586 B.C. So that means for somewhere around 600 years, they just waited for the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Friends, this was the first advent. 600 years of waiting. God promised a house, kingdom, and a throne to David. And now for 600 years, they have to wait. Somebody in here right now, you're in a season of advent like this. You've been praying and waiting on God to come. You're in the season of Advent. God, will you, do you even hear me? God, are you listening? God, are you there? It seems as if God either is deaf or just plain doesn't care. But what Advent is to remind us is that God works in his own time and in his own way. Peter said it this way, a day with God is but a thousand years. And a thousand years is but a day. God works. With God, time looks so different. So God's people are watching and waiting for their long-awaited Messiah to free them from the oppression of foreign nations and to regather them to their promised land. And finally, Matthew says, this person arrives in the person of Jesus the Christ. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. So what, Brandon? 
You've given us all this history. Thank you. You've even used a word that we didn't say amen to, like hermeneutic. <laughs> so what? What do I do leaving here from here? What we learn today is that as the son of Abraham, Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Remember, the promise was, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a seed. And through you a blessing, you'll be a blessing to the all of earth. Here's how Paul made the connection. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but to referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. If you go back a few verses in Galatians chapter 3 to verse 6, he says, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that, is, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, <laughs> saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So what? Are you a person of faith? Have you placed your faith in the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ? As the seed of Abraham, only Jesus can provide blessing and reconciliation and a right relationship with God. And so what's the so what for somebody in here today? The so what is you need to stop trusting in works. Stop trusting in being a good person and doing good things. And put all of your trust in Jesus Christ. Genesis 15 says, when God restated the covenant to Abraham, the text says, and Abraham believed God. The covenant, the blessings of the covenant have always, from the very beginning of time, been accessed through faith, not works. We think Old Testament, all we think is laws, obedience. Obedience is always the expression or the demonstration of faith. So to not to disobey is to be unfaithful. Jesus is the seed in whom we must put our faith. Secondly, what we learn today is Jesus is king. Since Jesus is the king, friends, our duty is to submit to his rule. Let me see if I can get my thoughts together. Gospel, gospel, gospel. Good news good news, there will be a proclaimer, an evangelist who will come back to the king and to the people, and he will bring glad tidings. We have won. Victory is secured. That's the good news. When people 
heard the good news that we had won the war, their duty to the king, they had two choices. Submit to his rule. He is the king. The other king has been defeated. So there is no rival. You either submit to his king or be destroyed. That's the only choice we have today to Jesus being king. We either surrender to his rule, submit to his rule, or come under his judgment. Friends, this is a call to obedience. And by the way, you've heard me say this again, and I'll say it again. Obedience is not legalism. We live in this age of being gospel-centered and being gracious and all that thing. Grace does not mean we have a license to live however we want to. Grace means, the, the, the fact that we've been saved by grace means that we are free to obey God because now we are no longer slaves to sin. Before, because we were slaves to sin, we couldn't do nothing else but disobey God. But through Jesus Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin. We are slaves to Jesus to obey him. Jesus said obedience is not legalism. Otherwise, he wouldn't have told his disciples, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey. How do you know you've got a disciple? Look at how much they obey the commands of Christ. You want to know if you love the Lord? If you love him, he said, those who love me, Jesus said this, those who love me will keep my commands. Obedience is the demonstration of love for God. And so since Jesus is the king, he's just not any king, he's the king of kings, we ought to obey him. But because Jesus is also the king, we also ought to bow down and worship him. That's what this season is all about. It's not just sitting on your do-nothing, doing nothing. No, 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 no. This season is about worshiping this baby who is the king. We ought to worship the king. This, this ought to propel us, move us, and to grow us deeper in our awe of this wonderful baby who breaks the silence of God. I can't wait to preach that, 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 that sermon, how to handle the silence of God. That's the blank spaces between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament. 400 years, by the way, of silence. Jesus breaks it. So he's the king. We ought to obey him. We ought to worship him. But if Jesus is king, that means he has a kingdom. Our job is to expand and extend his kingdom through disciple-making. Since Jesus is king, he has a kingdom. His first message was repent, change, turn around, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message for us today. This season of Advent, it ought to bring us to worship our king, but it also ought to make us repent. But it's also to help us to share the good news, bring the glad tidings of great joy. Jesus has come. He fulfills the Davidic covenant. 
And now we share that with uh, 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 people who are now living in darkness. We share with them the light of Jesus Christ, and we bring them now into the kingdom of God through the gospel. Since Jesus is king, this is final. I'm just trying to give you some application. Since Jesus is king, then Matthew 6.33 is going to preach right here. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The sad reality is that for many of us, we're not building his kingdom, we're building our own kingdom. We put ourselves at the center. We're self-absorbed. We have become our own idol. Seek first. And you know why? We don't seek first the kingdom of God because we're seeking the things of this world. Food. Clothing. Status, wealth, security, comfort. That's what he was talking about when he said, seek first the kingdom of the kingdom and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Prioritize God. And God will take care of you. If he takes care of the sparrow, if he takes care of the lilies of the field, if he takes care of the ant, how much more will he take care of those who have been created in his image? We let the things of this world strangle our joy and our commitment and our devotion and our faithfulness. Since Jesus is king, seek first his kingdom. God's kingdom is being orchestrated through his church in this age. This is the age of the church. And so the question that some of us have to ask is, how committed am I to his church? There's a sermon coming on that next uh, month. See, I struggle with pastoring people who read the Bible and say, seek first the kingdom of God, and we know God is moving his kingdom forward through his church, but yet they only show up once a month. All right, y'all hate when I go into pastoring mode. Finally, we got to go. God is faithful. That's what this teaches us, that every one of God's promises he fulfills. In Jesus Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. The first advent is evidence that God is faithful. God keeps his word. God is a promise keeper. He is faithful. He's faithful to forgive us from our sins. He's faithful in providing our needs. He's faithful in never leaving nor forsaking 
us. So what do we do? Trust in his promises. Stand on his promises. Be comforted by his promises. Live on his promises because God is faithful. Come on, Manuel. Come play something. Man, let's, let's, let's prepare communion.